Good morning, church. We're glad you're here. Turn to Daniel chapter 5. Um, and while you're turning there, I just want to thank the band. Thank you guys for leading us in worship this morning. I want to thank Joe for sharing his testimony, having that faith to step out and share. Look, church, we love that. We want to hear from you. And if God's put something on your heart, let us know. For us to hear the testimony of God and the life of his people is encouraging. It lifts us up and it gives us strength as a family to see what God is doing in your life. And so as we look at Daniel and we think of chapter 5, as we think of all of Daniel and our title of, of having a daring faith in this dark place is really hinged on the sovereignty of God. Really, it's, it's that which drives us to have a daring faith, right? It's not that we trust, we trust in God himself. It's not that we're looking to the outcome of what we think it should be but that we trust God that whatever the outcome is, he is faithful and just and he is right. And so for us to have a daring faith, it looks, it looks like us leaning into God no matter the circumstances of life. Leaning into him, trusting in him. And so thank you. Thank you this morning, Joe. And thank you, man, for leading us in that direction. As we lift up, we say, God is able, right? God is able. God is able, give me a faith to trust you, no matter what life looks like. So this morning, as we enter into Daniel chapter 5, the title of our sermon is The Scales of Judgment. A late Southern Baptist evangelist, his name was R.G. Lee, he had a message he often preached, and it was entitled this, he said, Payday, Someday. And the thrust of his message is that we may live a life of sin and it appears that we're getting away with it. But judgment is sure to come, whether in this life or in eternity. I know we've all been there. I know we've all evaluated our own life and said, look, look, God, look what I'm doing. Why is so, so and so? Looks like their life is so much better than mine. They live in sin. They're evil. They're wicked. The world gets away with all kinds of things. But it seems to be that they continue to thrive. And yet I'm stuck. I'm stuck in the middle of of this life which is hard. Where are you, God? Where are you? Hebrews 9, 27, 28 says this. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, here it is, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await for him. Church, we must be eagerly awaiting on him, no matter what it looks like to those around us, no matter if it looks like the world is thriving, they're not. If they're not trusting in the Lord, the judgment will come. Judgment will come to them. Trust in God's sovereignty. Walk faithfully with him. Abide in his word and his word alone. A.W. Tozer says this. He says, before the judgment seat of Christ, my service will not be judged by how much I have done, but by how much of me there is in it. No man gives it all until he is given all. No man gives anything acceptable to God until he has first given himself in love and sacrifice. Church, we're going to sacrifice on this earth. If you believe in Christ, if you trust in him, there's much sacrifice to come. It's easy. It's easy to walk with the world. 
It's easy. You won't be challenged. You can do what you want. You can get away with what you want on this earth. But one day judgment will come. It will come. So the main idea of our message this morning as we walk through this narrative is that God is mighty and just and no one will escape his judgment. God is mighty and just and no one, no one will escape his judgment. I know that doesn't seem like an encouraging message, but it is, church. It's encouraging. And when we look back at the uh, background of where we're at in Daniel, and we look at the people of God being in exile, being tortured, being murdered, being killed by the evil and wicked king in Babylon, this was an encouragement. This was an encouragement to them, and still is to us today, to know that God is in control that he has put uh, kings in their place, and he's controlled over them. And so here's our key verse. Look at verse 27, and then we'll work our way back through this narrative. Verse 27 says this. Tikal, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. The idea here is that we, is how do we measure up to God's demand for righteousness and justice? This is the idea This is what what Daniel is writing to encourage to those who have been exiled. And so there's four scenes here. There's four scenes. I want you to walk through this narrative with me. You have your scripture, hopefully, whatever source you have, whether it's a Bible or a digital source. I want you to walk with me as we read through this narrative. There's four scenes that we're going to see as we move through this narrative. And the first one is this, the drunken king's feast in his palace, verse 1 through 6. And here's where we get our first point. God will not be mocked by man. And so it's been 25 years have passed since the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. And now we see a new king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. We see in there, we'll see as we read through, it says father, but that word father really means grandson. He's referring to his grandson there and not necessarily his son. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, it's 25-year reign has passed. And now knowing this, knowing that God... is sending the Medes and the Persians to come and really take over the kingdom of Babylon, King Belshazzar has this feast. And what he's really trying to do is just kind of really motivate and really just kind of encourage his people that Babylon is still here, it's still strong, we're still going to reign. And so he throws this grand feast, and this is where we pick up. He's trying to build the morale of his people. In verse 1 it says this, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessel of gold and of silver that that Nebuchadnezzar, his father or grandfather, had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessel that he had taken out of the temple in the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the God of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And immediately, immediately the finger of the human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite of the lampstand. And what he means there is this, there was a lampstand, there's a wall, and he was really next to it. It's not opposite, but it was next to it. It illuminated it. It was well seen. He weren't going to miss it. And so he sees the hand. It says, and the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave away, 
and his knees knocked together. For many years, the Babylon king really continued to mock God, continued to worship their false gods. And I think what we're seeing here is the prophecy of Isaiah 47 coming to, coming to life. Because more than 100 years earlier, Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 47.10. He says, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your hearts, I am and there is no one beside me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. The ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Let me encourage you, church. Let me let you in on a secret. When we choose to ignore sin, when we choose to ignore the gravity of sin that it causes on this world, you and I are mocking God. We're mocking God. Maybe not in the way that the king did here in this story, but we mock God. We mock the cross of Christ. And what do I mean by that? It means we, we disrespect it. We dishonor it. We deny or ignore the work that he has done on the cross. So what do we do? What do we learn from this? We learn that we cannot lean on our own understanding. That we can't lean on our own wisdom in circumstances that are greater, that much greater than who we are. But that we have to lean on Christ. Our finite minds cannot comprehend what is going on. So what do we do? We find immediate comfort and satisfaction in sin. And this is a serious offense. Our hearts become hardened to it. Psalm 36, 1 says this. They are wicked because there's no fear of God before their eyes. Often we don't see the immediate results. Often us, we see that we understand that maybe we've wronged God. But we don't see anything that happened. Nothing's changed. And so then we sin again and again and again. And it goes away. And we're like, nothing's going to happen. Surely I've sinned. I'm continuing in that. And I see no results. But church, God is not mocked for long. God will not be mocked for long. And eventually... The consequences of our behavior will unfold. Galatians 6 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And so the king is mocking God. And we see this first scene. We see the drunken debauchery that is going on. And then scene two comes on. And the king is really seeking an interpretation in this scene. He wants to know what is going on. What is this writing on the wall? And we get to our next point, that God will send a clear warning. In verse 7 through 12, God will send us a clear warning. Verse 7 says this, The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And we know from the past stories, he's looked to them before. He's looked to the fools of this world to interpret that which they cannot. 
And so he's leaning on them again, and the king declares to the wise men, he's trying to give them some motivation. Here in verse 7, it says, The king declares to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed. Here's the second time we see that. And his lords were perplexed. Two quick things you know about Aramaic at this time. When they wrote it on the wall, it was written horizontal, not, I mean uh, vertical, not horizontal. And so you can imagine that when they're standing there looking at the wall and the king's going, what is going on? Why is it written uh, horizontally? I mean, vertically, not horizontal. The other thing is there were no vowels. So you could imagine if we took the vowels out of a sentence and we wrote it on the wall vertically, how complex would that be for us to figure it out? I mean, it's unendless. When we start sticking vowels in there, we can change to be whatever words we want it to be. And so they're looking at this and their, their minds are perplexed. It says that there at the end of verse 9, it says the lords were perplexed. And so things just went from bad to worse real quick, right? Real quick, the king's like, I need an interpretation. Let's bring in the enchanters. I'll give them the third in the kingdom. If you can just tell me the dream or the riddle. And they can't. And so then the queen enters in verse 10. It says, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your fathers, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the God, Yahweh, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because of an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now remember, this is 25 years later. Daniel's an old man. He's probably in his 80s. He's probably been retired from the courts of the king when Nebuchadnezzar is. And so they're having to go find him. So they're saying, go call him. Go get him. And then we pick up in verse 13, and here's our third scene. So we went from from the interpretation uh, or seeking a advice or seeking the, the explanation of the interpretation to now Daniel's going to enter the scene. He's going to give him the interpretation. So Daniel's before the king and we get our third point here. It says God's message will be revealed. God's message will be revealed. Church, if you don't know that, God doesn't hide anything from us. He revealed, he gave us the word of God and he's revealed all that we need to know. He's given us that. And so in verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judea. And so right away, the king's like interrogating, right? He's like, who are you? Are you the Daniel? Are you sure? You're like an old man in the 80s. We're not really sure about who you are. And he's not very confident about Daniel. He doesn't really know him. And we see this because in verse 14 and 16, he says it twice. He says, I have heard of you. Here's verse 14. I've heard of you that the spirit of, of the gods is in you. So I've heard. I'm not too sure, but I think this is you. And that the light and the understanding and the excellent wisdoms are found in you. And then verse 15, he says, Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read the writings and make known to me this interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation 
of the matter. And then verse 16, here he is again. He's like, but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. And so he gives him a little motive, just like he did them. He says, now if you can read the writings and make known to me the interpretations, you shall be clothed with purple and, and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Isn't it great how we see God using or, just a, ordinary men to accomplish his goal, to bring his message to the unbelieving world, and he still does that today. And I love Daniel's answer here. He says, I don't, I don't need your gifts. I don't need your gifts. I don't need what you have to offer. Give it to someone else. But what I want to do is I want to give you the message of God. If there's anything I can do, let me give to you, right? And the king doesn't understand what he's doing. He's saying, I want to give to you. So verse 17, it says, Then Daniel answers and says before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writings to the king and make known to him the interpretation. This is what he wants. This is his desire to be the messenger. In verse 18, it says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and the greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and language trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. God had to remind Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most high? He had to remind him. And then he says in verse 21, he says, He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of the beast, and he dwelled with the wild donkeys, and he was fed grass like ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew, until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. God reminded him. King Belshazzar, he knew this. This was his grandfather. He was familiar with this. And then look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. 14 times here you're going to notice the word you or yours. He says this, verse 22 through 23, 14 times. It says, and you, as son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessel of your house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drank wine from them. And you have praised the God of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Why does God remind him of his grandfather's account? Surely he knew. Surely he knew the account of his grandfather. God has shown him mercy in light of what he already knew. And so in two verses, he shows him that it's all about him. He shows him that it's all about him, that his heart needs to be humbled as well. And he's already known this. He's known of of the account of his grandfather And of that account, that's where we see the mercy of God. And yet King Belshazzar still praises the God of silver and gold and iron and bronze, stone and wood. And he does not lift up the 
king, the most high God. He does not humble his heart. And so in verse 24, we see this. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mena, mena, tickle, and person. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mena, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and the chain of gold was put around his neck, and the proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Let's look at this inscription. Mena is the kingdom is numbered. It's the word for number. Church, God has a plan for you. He's numbered seasons in your life. And they're going to come to an end. And new seasons are going to come. And we have to trust in that. And so right here he's saying that he numbered the days of the Babylonian kingdom. And that one day the Medes and the Persians would take over. He's saying your kingdom's been numbered. And then here's the second part. He says, you've been weighed. That word tickle means weighed or found wanting. They didn't measure up. It was too light. The word there means too light. So when we think of a balancing scale, when we look at a scale, we put weight on it. Which one goes to the top? The heavier one or the light one? It's the light one. And so we think of this example, we think that you've been weighed, and he says you've been too light. It's because he's put the weight of the world on this side. It's all about him. And so what he's done is that he's pushed himself, I'm sorry, he's pushed himself, uh, he's put the weight, I'm sorry, not of God here. And so the weight of God has fallen and it's pushing him to the top, right? He was too light. God's heavier. He's too light. So everybody looked at King Belshazzar on the scales. And so it must be flipped around that when we put the weight and the glory of ourselves apart, God has moved to the top, right? God, the scales are unbalanced. He was too light. He was raised to the top because it was all about him and not God. So God fell to the bottom. So that's what it means that we're going to be weighed. When we think of that scale, we think of that example, it's a good way to check our motives. Are we the one that's being pushed to the top because it's all about us? We're taking God out of ourselves, so we're too light. God's not heavy enough in our, in our life. And so we're being pushed to the top. And God and the people in the world looks at you. And they're not looking to God. But when we weight ourselves in the glory of God, when we weight ourselves, when we walk and abide in Christ, it pushes God to the top. And the world sees him. And it doesn't see us. And then Paris divided. God took away the Babylonian king and gave it to the next kingdom. And then we get to scene four. It's the last night. It's later that night, and God fulfills the writing on the wall. And here's our fourth truth. It says, God's promises are true. Look at verse 30 and 31. It says, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And so the sovereign most high God is in control, and he gives them to whom he wills. This is another message of comfort 
for the Israelites who were suffering in exile in Babylon. I love what Sidney Gerdanius says here. I want to read this to you about this. It says, their God is not helpless over against the Babylonian gods. On the contrary, their God is the most high God, while the Babylonian gods are as dead as the metals from which they are constructed. Israel's God has demonstrated his sovereignty by judging the Babylonian king for his blasphemy and gives his kingdom to the Medes and Persians. Israel's God is sovereign over all. Their future is in God's almighty hand. Mm. It's not just an encouragement for them, but it's an encouragement for us today. When you think of your life, when you think of your job, when you think of your circumstances, God is in control. When you're thinking, how do I pay the next bill? God is in control. Whether he pays it or not, whether you make that payment or not, we need to have a faith that trust God is in control. And so there's a few lessons that we can take from the story today. One is this, God's word is sure. God's word is sure. He promised the Medes and the Persians would take over Babylon, and they did. And then he promised later that a kingdom Rome would come and that God would begin his, his kingdom there. But eventually, Roman Empire would be destroyed. He promised that everyone who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. And everyone who doesn't will remain in their sin, and they will bear the penalty of that sin. And that sin is death. He promised to return and to rescue his children and to judge the wicked. His word is true. It is sure. The second lesson is this, is that God's judgment will not tarry. It will not tarry. He's given warning, and he's demanded righteousness. So don't let it surprise you. Belshazzar, he did not expect the judgment of God, and he was killed. We look at Joshua chapter 7, and we see that Achan did not expect the judgment of God when he stole from God. When he stole, he, uh, God stoned him and burned him, not only burned him, but burned all of his possessions. And then we look at Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, Saul did not expect the judgment of God there. He didn't expect it. He feared the people and not God. His fear was in them. It wasn't based on what God would do. And God judged him. Ananias in Acts 5 did not expect judgment. They sold their land and their property and then they came together and said, this is what we're going to keep and we're not going to tell. But God knew. And when they came and they asked and they told what they sold it for, they breathed their last breath. They did not expect the judgment. The church today does not fear the judgment of God. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that we don't fear that. We need to fear his judgment so that he will be exalted and not ourselves. We want him to be in the forefront of all that we do. And the third point is this, is that God holds us all accountable. Nothing is hidden from God's eyes, and he holds everyone accountable for what he has given to them. God has given you a responsibility to be the gospel, to first trust in his son, accept him, 
as Lord and Savior and live a life that glorifies God, that puts him on the throne and not yourself. You be accountable to that. Belshazzar was accountable for what he knew from his grandfather, and we are accountable for what we know now about Christ as our Savior. Romans 1 says we have no excuse. We are without excuse. If we were to place you on the scale today, which way would it tip? Which way would it tip? Are you walking and abiding in Christ? Are you seeking his word every day? So you're full of the spirit of God. And when you're put on that scale, you're heavier and you lift Christ up that the world may see him. Or is it opposite? That Christ isn't in your life at all. And that you're lifted. You're too light. And that when you've been weighed, the world sees you. It's a tough evaluation, church. What does that look like in our life? Don't test the limits of how far you can tip the scale. Don't test the limits. Because we don't know when God will come and take us from this earth. We don't know. We know it's appointed that one day we will die. But we don't know when. Don't be like the king. Don't be throwing yourself a party, thinking how good you are, looking over your kingdom and all you've accomplished, all the good things that you've accomplished. Set forth God's kingdom. Serve and love those that he's put around you so that he gets the glory, that he is raised up. Trust in the bloodshed of Christ on our behalf that God will receive the ultimate glory. Let me pray. Father, how we thank you for the book of Daniel and how it has challenged us to walk in faith, to trust in your sovereignty. Father, the tendency is for us to build our own kingdom. That in and of ourselves, if you put us in a room with God and sin, we want to choose sin. That's our nature. But Father, we're thankful that you came and that you covered us with your blood. And now our nature is to glorify you, to choose God. We want to choose God. Teach us to be a people that trust in you. Trust in your sovereignty. Father, rid of of ourselves. Remove anything in us that is not of you. So that you may be glorified. That you may be known. And not ourselves. Thank you for your son. He gives us life. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. I want to encourage you, church, to pray, to be led by the Spirit of God. If there's someone around you that you want to pray for, evaluate your life. Think through what you've been filling yourself up with. Is it God or is it this world? Which way is the scale tipping? 
Who's being elevated? Is it you or is it Christ? And I want to I encourage you. I want to encourage you. Grab someone. Pray with someone. Come pray with me or Michael. We'll be at the front. We'd love to pray with you guys. We know that life has tough circumstances. But God is in control. Trust in that. Trust in that.